This is a CBC Podcast. Hi there, it's Pia. Every Wednesday, we are bringing you a bonus podcast, a handpicked story from the week's round of the Sunday magazine that we really think is worth hearing. Of course, you can hear all of our stories. They're all worth listening to. <laughs> on the full podcast we put out Sunday and on the CBC Listen app. All right, here's this week's highlight. This summer's wildfires and heat waves and heightened storm events like the one that hit Atlantic Canada this weekend all echo the concerns and the fears laid out in Naomi Klein's 2014 book, This Changes Everything. In the years since, the Canadian writer and activist continued to be a leading figure in the climate justice movement, addressing protests and COP conferences and meeting with communities affected by climate change. But when the pandemic hit and shut all of that down, Naomi turned to the world of social media to fill her days. And that complicated, messy, misinformation-filled space she calls the mirror world is where Naomi Klein sets her new book, which is called Doppelganger. Naomi, good morning. Wonderful to speak with you, Pia. I was just saying your book's such a banger. Um, But before we talk about Doppelganger, last hour we were talking about the large climate protests happening around the world this weekend in the run-up to um, a UN climate summit. I know um, you're going to be marching in New York later today. Why do you feel it's important to still have these kinds of demonstrations? I think it's so important to get out of our isolation and our doom and despair and realize that actually we are the majority. Uh, we have a lot of company in uh, in, the, in those emotions, but when we come together, we also feel something else, which is the latent power of that, uh, and the power to organize, the power to organize as voters as well. This in New York, I think it's going to be pretty big. I think this is going to be the biggest show of strength from the climate movement since the huge uh, strikes in 2019. Uh, and it's ahead of a climate ambition summit that the UN Secretary General has called. It's the first time there's been a climate ambition summit. We've had lots of climate summits, but the message from the UN Secretary General is, you know, echoing Greta a little bit, like we've heard the blah, blah, blah. Now show us the actual policies that are going to get this disaster in check. This is the first in-person march since before the pandemic, the large one which you referenced in in 2019. That was the one led by Greta Thunberg. You said um, about that, that, you don't believe that since that time, or maybe even earlier, that the climate justice movement has, quote, gotten its fire back. Do you think it's getting its fire back, given, you know, all the things I just said in the intro, all the climate crises we've seen over the past number of months, the hottest summer on record worldwide? I think we are. You know, even back in 2019, I think there was still a sense that we're talking about a a crisis that that is going to come. Whereas now this is a summer where the storms are hitting us as we speak. We've seen these devastating disasters from the flooding in Libya to the the fires in Maui, the pavement melting in Phoenix, and of course, the wildfires across Canada. And, you know, that's just the barest of lists. So it's no longer about it being the future. It's no longer really about proving to people that it's real. What it's about is giving people a sense that we actually can have policies that are on the scale and with the urgency of the crisis itself. And that's what this is about. 
And within that context, Naomi, you talked uh, in an interview with The New Yorker about speechlessness when it comes to your own social activism and the climate crisis. Break that down for me a little bit more. What exactly do you mean by that? My own speechlessness uh, in the second year of the pandemic, I think really had to do with, I, I suppose if I'm honest, Pia, I had had some hopes in the early months that the pandemic itself might be a kind of a wake-up call because it it laid bare so many inequalities and injustices. Uh, the risks of the pandemic were so unevenly distributed. I was part of the privileged few who, who could stay home and work, but many, many people were, were bearing the risks to serve people like me. And there was a lot of solidarity expressed in the early days where we thought we really need to change based on what we have learned. And I think it was as movements started receding, as it became clear that we were going to return to a kind of normal that was itself a crisis, that I lost faith in a certain kind of writing that I have done my entire adult life, which was, you know, thesis, argument, fact, fact, fact. I just wasn't sure that that kind of writing was yielding any kind of results. So I guess that's the speechlessness that I tried to name in the book. And this all perfectly brings us to Doppelganger, which is your new book, which helped you work through some of those feelings that you're just talking about and where you've sort of found yourself, I don't want to say at a loss, but in a place where you're doing a lot of self-examination. This book, though, Naomi Klein, um, begins in a completely different place, though, and it begins with your relationship with your doppelganger, Naomi Wolf. So I'm just giving listeners a second to, to, to make the distinction, but to help them out, that Naomi, Naomi Wolf, American author and activist, rose to fame in the 1990s. Um, her book about third wave feminism, The Beauty Myth, got a lot of traction. Um, but since then, since that time, she has become a well-known conspiracy theorist and anti-vaccine crusader. So that's sort of the broad strokes. Two women named Naomi, both activists, both getting, you know, attention and, and, and saying things. But... For you, when did you go, oh my goodness, um, I'm getting mistaken for Naomi Wolf, who, first of all, is not me, but also we come from very different political, social justice perspectives. Well, to be honest, this has been happening for a good 15 years. I've had all kinds of experiences with it. I, I, you know, I, I start the first chapter describing a scene where I'm overhearing people in a public restroom uh, talking about me, but it turns out not to be me. You know, I, I, I've had arguments with people who insist that they were at parties with me. <laughs> I'm like, no, I was not at that party. Um, I, and, and I don't think this is unique. We, 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 we all get confused with one another. I think people of color experience this much more than white people. Uh, you know, there's such a phenomenon uh, people refer to their quote unquote work twins where uh, people who sort of come from the same ethnic background are perennially confused by colleagues with one another. The reason why I use my own identity confusion as as a entry point, uh, and it really is not a book about my doppelganger. It's, it is a book about the way in which reality seems to be doubling or uh, generally in mirroring. So I use this identity crisis of mine during the pandemic. So you asked, you know, when I realized it, when I realized it was a bit of a big problem and not just like the occasional confusion was, I'd say about eight months into the pandemic, when 
she, my doppelganger, really went hard into medical misinformation and disinformation about masks, about the pandemic itself, about vaccines, about vaccine verification apps. And she turned into quite a star on the right. She was on Fox News all the time. She was on Steve Bannon's podcast all the time. And when I would log online to try to get some simulation of the social relationships that tell me who I am because I wasn't able to see my friends or, you know, have those in-person relationships, I would just get inundated with references to her. And so I thought, this is a really interesting way to explore the dissolution of meaning and identity that is happening online generally. So she's like the white rabbit in Alice in Wonderland leading me down that rabbit hole. But the book is about the rabbit hole. (laughs) So you could have been, you know what, Naomi Wolf. Yeah, people confuse us, whatever. Like, I know who I am. People who I know know who I am. I'm just not going to engage, right? But as you say, this kind of for you really piqued your curiosity, like what is beyond people confusing us, what's happening here? And so your interest in her sort of descent into the anti-vaccine world of conspiracy theories, which I should say, I think surprised a lot of people who had been very interested and maybe even, you know, agreed with some of Naomi Wolf's uh, views in the past. Mm -hmm. Um, This draws you down into the misinformation rabbit hole where you want to go investigate it. So what did you learn about how disruptors, and especially as you reference people like Steve Bannon, right-wing mm-hmm. disruptors, hook people to their messaging? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's. I think the fact that she's sort of my doppelganger is a lot less interesting than the fact that she is kind of a doppelganger of her former self. Like she has changed dramatically from the person that people might remember as the author of The Beauty Myth or an advisor to Al Gore uh, in the 2000 election. Um, Now she's joining Steve Bannon in election denial. She did that in the midterm elections. This prominent feminist is now minimizing the U.S. Supreme Court's attacks on abortion rights, saying maybe it's a state's right issue. She takes pictures of her gun. She is warning of civil war. I mean, it is a, a dramatic transformation. And she's not the only one. So many people who I speak to say, you know, sort of, sort of, like, I can't talk to my brother anymore. I can't talk to my uncle anymore. It's like they're a doppelganger of themselves. So what is happening? Why have so many people taken flight from reality? And I mean, frankly, I think it actually has to do in part what we started talking about, the fact that our shared home is in crisis, the fact that we are experiencing some revelations of some very hard realities to hold about the impacts of a a way, our way of life on the ability of our planet to be hospitable to us. That's a big deal. That's going to scramble our senses of self, even if we're not conscious that it's having an effect on us. Uh, the racial justice reckonings of this period also, I think, have been a profound identity challenge to white people, to settlers on these lands. And that is causing some morbid symptoms that I think we're seeing, even if it's not totally conscious. There's a huge amount of co-optation of the language of racial justice that goes on in these conspiracy worlds. So, for instance, the slogans of of the racial justice uprisings of, of the spring and summer of 2020, one of them was, I can't breathe. That gets twisted and, and warped into, I can't breathe because you're making me wear a mask. My body, my choice, the slogan uh, of the reproductive freedom movements becomes uh, my body, my choice. I don't want to get vaccinated. There have even been co-optations of 
orange shirts by wellness influencers. We, we know that every child matters, orange shirts, symbols of, of solidarity and calls for justice for the residential school genocide. Suddenly, orange shirts, shirts are for sale and they say Canada's second genocide and they're for working out during yoga and they're referring to vaccines as a second genocide. That really happened. So what is going on with this co-optation at the same time as there is denialism uh, surging uh, about the unmarked graves uh, at the same time as there are attacks on the right of students to learn true histories of their countries and attacks on reproductive freedoms. So I think part of the appeal is you don't have to look at these hard truths. Let's just take a flight into fantasy. I think that's the deepest appeal. And then this is really, again, sets up very well for this idea that you talk about, about diving into what you call the mirror world. So mirrors give us a reflection. So for people who aren't against vaccine mandates or don't believe they'd easily fall for conspiracy theories, how are they being reflected? Well, I think part of it is is this taking of, of very powerful histories and slogans and causes and just absorbing them into this movement, which is about positioning themselves as the biggest victim. I think the section in the book, the head subtitle is, I too am a victim, the biggest victim. But one of the things I did for this project, Pia, as you know, from reading the book is I, I it's it, it's very much a work of cultural criticism, more than the sort of hard politics of, of, of my recent books. It's maybe back to my first book, No Logo, which had a lot more cultural criticism. So as I tried to make sense of my own doppelganger, I went deep into the literature of doppelgangers. And the truth is that you may think you're looking at your doppelganger, but you're ultimately looking in the mirror, as you say. You think you're looking at them, but you're really looking at yourself. And I think what disturbed me most as I went deep into listening to Steve Bannon, and I'm sorry to report that I have listened to hundreds of hours of, of Mr. Bannon's podcast, is sometimes I would listen to him and I would get this really vertiginous feeling because he sounded a little bit like me. Um, and he sounded a little bit like a doppelganger of the left. And by that, I'm not saying it's the same as the left, but I am saying that He's taking parts of what used to be the left agenda and mixing and matching it with a much more nefarious, racist, transphobic, xenophobic agenda. Uh, but but sometimes I would listen and he would do these montages of um, clips from mainstream cable news shows that said, brought to you by Pfizer, brought to you by Moderna. Uh, you know, it would be like that. And it sort of reminded me of Media Education 101 from when I was an undergrad, where we were talking about the connection between a you know, handful of corporations and the kind of news that we got. But the reason why it was a little bit chilling to me was because I realized that that kind of sort of basic economic education was not really happening as much on the left. And we were becoming very reactive so that whatever the conspiracy world was saying, we were just saying the opposite. So if, if they were against big pharma, then we were saying, well, roll up your sleeves and get get your shot, which we should do. But we should also say, well, why are we getting our third and fourth shot? And huge parts of the planet have not even been offered their first shot. So I think that we became much too reactive. And we're in this, you know, what I describe as a mirror world dance with one another. This speaks to me so <laughs> precisely. And I think it speaks to a lot of our listeners, Naomi, because 
so much over the last number of years. I take in a lot of media from different political viewpoints. I, I listen and watch and read from people that I might disagree or do disagree with, in fact. And sometimes I have to go, wait a minute, I just have to straighten this out, right? Before you were for big whatever, and now you're against, and I, I'm always like, it, it is cognitive dissonance, and I think I might be going a little bit mad. Like, I'm like, did I have that right back then? So I, mm-hmm. so I think this resonates so much, just who's saying what and what we used to attach certain kinds, if I can put that in a word, in quotations, of people, yeah. has really been upended. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, somebody, a figure like Bannon is very interesting because he is, he's a, he's a political strategist. So I think this is much less about what he believes and more about what he understands to be a path to power. He is interested in power. You know, he says this again and again on his podcast, that the goal is to take back power for a hundred years. But what he understands is that it is very strategic to take the issues that your political opponent has not been using, has abandoned, and bring it into your tent. Not because you necessarily mean it, but because that's smart politics. So he did it in 2016 with um, working class uh, uh, voters in, in the Rust Belt who had voted for Democrats two, three times who promised to uh, put an end to the free trade deals that were offshoring jobs and then didn't. And you know, Trump started being the guy who promised that he was going to address that issue. And it was very, very resonant. Now he's doing that. And he calls it MAGA plus. This is something very important. Uh, So I am less interested in what my doppelganger is getting out of Steve Bannon than what he is getting out of her. One thing that I think your listeners might be surprised to hear is that she is on his show at at some points almost every day. Uh, She was on his show every single day for two weeks. They published a book together. They put out t-shirts together. I mean, this is the weirdest buddy movie of all time, Steve Bannon and Naomi Wolf, but it is real. What she is getting from him is a much larger platform than she's had in years. What he is getting from her is the hope of getting something that Trump has not done very well with, which is women voters, in particular, white women voters who didn't go along with their husbands last time. Um, and he's taking their COVID concerns around masks and vaccines and pivoting it towards transphobia, um, uh, anti-racist education, um, and, and casting it all as child abuse and grooming. Uh, and, you know, I think if his past record is anything to go by, this is something we should pay close attention to. This is Sunday Magazine. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay, and I'm speaking with renowned author, filmmaker, and social activist Naomi Klein. Not to be confused with Naomi Wolf. Uh, let uh, I want to talk about the truckers' convoy because you led me to a place that I hadn't thought about before in sort of thinking about this. You lay out how people, you know, get taken into conspiracy worlds and conspiracy theories and how they divide us politically and socially. You said that opposing political movements can seem like doppelgangers of each other. So the trucker convoy in Ottawa, in Windsor and Alberta and elsewhere, um, and the protests against the Keystone XL pipeline that you've yourself taken part in. This is all going to ruffle some people's feathers. So I want you to lay it out. Where are the parallels? Where do you see these two quote unquote movements, the trucker convoy protests against oil and gas pipelines, Keystone? Where are the parallels? Well, I think I just said that I, that I recognized the kind of sense of 
power and excitement. Like we've taken over the city and, you know, look at our communal kitchen and Hey, there's a kid's playground. Like that's the vibe at any time you have a mass action. And there's that kind of sense of excitement, except for it was a warped doppelganger. I'm not saying it's a one to one equation. I'm not saying we're like flip sides of the same coin. I really don't believe that. Uh, I believe quite the opposite that, that in fact, real mass action that is fighting for changes that are going to uh, improve people's material circumstances are our best chance of of fighting this kind of conspiracy culture that is offering counterfeit solutions um, or no solutions at all, especially because the the call of the convoy was really all about wanting to not have to be responsible to one another, to not have to do things because there were more, more vulnerable people. Um, it was a cry of individualism and lots and lots of individuals getting together to say, leave us alone, which is very different than the kinds of mass actions that I've been a part of, which are about solidarity and and standing up for each other. And I'm sure that there are people who are listening who dis disagree with that. What worried me most when I watched that play out was, well, you know, why isn't the left actually out there on the streets? And, and you know, there were leftists who who came out eventually and, and challenged some, some of the, the convoyers. But what I mean is, well, why didn't we call for vaccine justice and lifting the patents and making sure everybody had their first shot with the kind of energy and force Politics hates a vacuum. And I think, you know, this comes back to what I was saying earlier about the way we became a little bit too obedient and towing the government party line, a lot of us, uh, during the pandemic. And I'm particularly worried about the precedent set by the, uh, by the invoking of the Emergency Act because the reason for it that Trudeau government officials talked about, including Christopher Friedland quite explicitly, was that this was an economic disruption to the Canadian economy. And, you know, I'm speaking to you, the UAW in the U.S. has just called a strike. Their goal is to disrupt the economy. That is what a strike does. And I think if we're going to get the kind of change that we need in the face of the climate crisis, in the face of massive inequality, it, it's going to be disruptive. And uh, indigenous nations, you know, some of the only tools available are the tools of the blockade, are the tools of disruption. And that's the kind of reactivity that I worry about when I see people on the left cheering the invoking of the Emergencies Act. And that wasn't everyone. There were lots of people who raised questions. I think, wait a minute, where are our principles? We believe that we have the right to... You know, to engage in this kind of disruption. Uh, it has to be peaceful, but but we have that right. Is it fair to say, you know, we always talk about how divided we are, right and left in the U.S., Republican and Democrat in Canada, you know, conservatives and liberals and so on and so forth, and even beyond the political realm, right? And I've probably been guilty of this too. I'm like, can't we just all get along and go back to that, like, unity thing that I, th I, I maybe <laughs> incorrectly thought we had? But when you say, like, look, we're in a time of disruption. I guess the question becomes, should we just try to be being like we all get along or should, say, people with common goals, even though they might be on opposing sides of a political spectrum, band together? Well, I think, <laughs> you know, I think we're on a dangerous path on a lot of different levels. Um, and, you know, I, I say that in the context of the climate emergency, in the context of surging authoritarianism around the world um, and all of these different political players who who are, who are engaging in this mix and match of uh, of issues taking issues from the from the left and mixing them with an explicitly racist agenda 
It's happening around the world. So I don't think it's a go, you know, go along to get along moment. I think it is a moment to be very, very clear on the stakes of this moment and what it will take to get to some kind of stable ground. And it requires strategy. So I guess I feel, Pia, that sometimes the discourse around reaching across the aisle can be used to say, well, we should be making alliances with people who really, really oppose our very existence, um, who, uh, you know, have a really nefarious agenda. But I think if we look at history, every victory for the fascist right is also a story of fragmentation, uh, division, and a failure to make strategic alliances on the anti-fascist left, which isn't to say it's all our fault, but it is to say the stakes are very, very high and we need to be extremely strategic in, in how we build alliances, but also how we build a counterpower to those forces. A lot of this, I think, is the loss of trust, um, a broken trust in our public institutions, in our politicians, in facts, in journalists. Mm-hmm. We face all that, right, on a daily basis. Where does trust fit into this? And, and for you, Naomi Klein, and like, wh- how do we even start rebuilding that? And maybe the trust is just, hey, can we s- just talk? Or can I yell at you? Or can I protest against you? Or whatever it is. But can we have some kind of quote unquote conversation or be in dialogue with one another? I, te- I teach university students um, at UBC and and before that at Rutgers, and there's definitely a a feeling uh, of, among a lot of a lot of young people who I speak to of a deep disappointment and lack of trust in leadership. A lot of it has to do with you know what I what I describe in the book is a rupture between words and meaning. So here we've been talking about you know sort of far right wild conspiracies that clearly represent a breakdown between words and meaning. You know, uh, Steve Bannon now positions himself as an anti-fascist. So like nothing means anything, right? But it's too easy to just say, well, they are the ones that are shredding language because the, the reason why people are marching in the streets around the world and in New York City right now is because centrist leaders like Joe Biden say all the right things about the climate crisis, but then approve new oil pipelines and new extraction projects. And what I think we most need if we want to rebuild trust is a project of reuniting words with actions. You know, it's really easy to say lots of wonderful things, but we're in the era of the performance, right? And I think social media has massively amplified this in the sense that it's words are so cheap right now. It's so easy to perform oneself and have that been have nothing to do with material changes in the real world. So, you know, I don't think we get out of this trust crisis with fact checking and content moderation and deplatforming. I don't think it is just a crisis that plays out in the world of words. I think it plays out in material circumstances. And when people see a connection between what our leaders say and how they are living their lives, like how our lives change, then I think trust will will gradually be rebuilt. No matter who I talk to, and I think you will say the same and our listeners will say the same, where people stand on the political spectrum, everyone's nervous, Mm -hmm. right? It's a nervous time. They're scared. I think that's like really the... The piece of unity, like the through line of everyone, everyone's scared, like it seems very unsettling the world right now. And um, you say something at the end of Doppelganger, it's, I'll read the whole quote in a sec, but it, 
it, it really comforted me when you say that's okay. Here's the quote. Uh, you say the known world is crumbling. That's okay. It needed to crash. Now in the rubble, we can make something more reliable, more worthy of our trust, more able to survive the coming shocks. So thank you for making me feel comfortable by saying that's okay, that the world is crumbling. Um, but what do you want that world to look like realistically, Naomi? I think if there's a guiding principle that I think we that we need, it is a rejection of the idea that some people can be sacrificed, that some places can be sacrificed. If we look at the number of people who are being forced out of their homelands right now because of wars, because of climate disasters, the issue is not just the coming weather disruptions that we need to think about. We need to think about what kind of people we want to be as we face these shocks. So when I, when I think about what that stability is, it is a core belief that we are equal to one another. And just because somebody lives in another country, just because somebody doesn't look like us does not mean that we can come up with some sort of rationale that says, well, we can just watch them drown um, or we can just let them disappear. That's the monster at the gate that, that I worry most about. And it isn't just out there, it's inside. And that's the thing about doppelgangers. You think you're looking at them, but they're really holding up a mirror. It's always... um really important and pleasure to listen to you Naomi you always give me lots so many new things to think about um so thanks for this book and thanks for joining me today I appreciate it so much thank you so much Pia I really enjoyed it Naomi Klein's latest book is called Doppelganger a trip into the mirror world And you can find all the stories we bring you each week on The Sunday Magazine by heading to our website, cbc.ca slash Sunday. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Thanks for lending us your ear. We'll talk to you again on Sunday. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.